Welcome to the Lunch Break Bible Study. 20 minutes to get you in the Word and get you on your way. 20 minutes so that you can be in the Word today, even if the only time you have is your lunch break. I am Pastor Frank from Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, super, super happy to be back on the microphone today. It's been a long time since I was able to get behind the mic here. A lot of stuff going on in my life, but today I am happy to continue with the Gospel of Mark. We ended with uh, chapter 8 in Mark's Gospel, verse 21, so we're about halfway through the Gospel at this point. What we saw at the at the end of our last episode is this kind of confusion by the disciples. They don't understand what Jesus is all about. And that theme of not really understanding who Jesus is and what he's all about, that's going to continue here in the next a few passages in Mark's Gospel. So beginning with chapter 8, verse 22, it says that Jesus and the disciples come to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch the blind man. They asked him to heal the blind man by his touch. They have faith that he can do that. So Jesus takes the blind man by the hand, but he takes him outside of the village. And then when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Now, I think we've already discussed in this series uh, the connection between uh, this Holy Spirit and water uh, that's very, very pronounced in John's Gospel. And the idea that Jesus spits on him, we think somebody spits on you, that's some insulting and, and horrible. But what Mark is really doing is he is making a connection between Jesus and, and the water of, Jesus being the water of life. And that his, uh, the water from Jesus, the spit, the water from Jesus, much like the deep sighs he gives when he is uh, dealing with people, are connected to the Holy Spirit. So uh, Jesus spits in the man's eyes, the Holy Spirit right, giving that water uh, to him, puts his hands on him, and Jesus says, do you see anything? Now, this is one of those head scratchers. We've had three of these things in Mark's Gospel. This is the third one. The first was when he went somewhere and he was not able to do miracles. Then he goes somewhere else and the woman touches the hem of his garment and he doesn't know who that is. And here's the third time, the really confusing one. Um, Jesus touches the man, asks him, does he see anything? The man looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And that's really confusing. What does that mean? Verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So first, Jesus has to touch the man twice, but at the second time Jesus encounters him, then the man sees clearly. And I think this is a reflection. What's going on in this parable, and the reason Mark I mean, Mark's the only one who has this in his gospel, and I think the reason Mark puts this here is that it is kind of a reflection of the way that the disciples are encountering Jesus. They saw Jesus, and they think they have some vision. Jesus encounters them, but they just don't, they just don't comprehend it yet. Here, the man, he gets partial sight, but he doesn't quite understand what's happening because the people look like trees. But let's keep reading. So Jesus sent the man home, saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And then he has this encounter with his disciples, and he asks, Who do people say that I am? The disciples reply with the standard replies they had been hearing from other people. Some say you're John the baptizer. Others say you're Elijah. And others say you're one of the other prophets. 
but what about you, he asks. Who do you say that I am? And this is where we get that understanding of the disciples not quite getting who Jesus really is. Because Peter says, well, you are the Christ. And we see in other Gospels, uh, Jesus um, says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because, uh, you know, this wasn't revealed to you by, by flesh and blood, but by only comes, this kind of knowledge only comes from the Father. So Jesus, in verse 30 in Mark's Gospel, though, it kind of truncates it, just Peter's confession is all that's there. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anybody. Right, so Jesus sort of affirms Peter's confession, but he says, don't say anything about it. And then in verse 31, you learn why Jesus says, don't say anything about it. Because then he begins to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, that is the Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And... He speaks plainly about this, and Peter takes him aside takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And so you see kind of the parallel here between what's happening here with Peter and the other disciples and the man who was blind, and Jesus had to touch him twice to get his sight. Because the man who was blind, Jesus had to touch him twice. He saw things, but he didn't quite understand them, and they made no sense to him. This is the same sort of thing. Peter and the disciples see Jesus, they recognize that he's the Christ, but the confession that they're making is not lining up with reality. Just as the blind man said, the people look like trees walking around. Here Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus explains what it means that he is the Christ, that he must suffer many things, he must be killed, and three days later rise again. Peter says, no, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. What you're saying is nonsensical. It's, it's not true. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And what Jesus is doing is saying, you don't understand yet what it means to truly be the Christ. You don't know what it means to be the Christ. And further, you don't know what it means to follow me as a disciple. And that's what he's going to explain now in verse 34. He calls the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What Jesus is saying is, if you think that you can just kind of follow me straight on the road to glory, then you don't know what it really means to follow me. You're still blind. Here's what it is to follow me. You can't just come along behind me. You have to take up your cross and go the way that I am going to go. And that's a much different thing. Verse 35, he says, because if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it, right? But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, this is important because here it is in the center of Mark's gospel and in these sort of ancient texts, especially in, in, in kind of Hebrew literature, to have something in the very center of your, of your work is to give it primary importance. So a lot of, um, a lot of Jewish literature in the Bible that we see um, you'll have kind of a building up of, of things to a central point, and then it then descends from there. And the idea is that the, what's in the center of the work is the most important thing going on here. Not all Jewish literature, obviously, and not all of the Old Testament, but a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, you'll see this. Here in Mark's Gospel, you've got the same thing. This very central idea is here in the center of Mark's Gospel, right here in chapters 7 and 8. 
Um, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And it's so important, and Mark may have included it here, because think of the people that Mark is writing to sometime around 60 AD, about 30 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. How important this section was for the early church as they passed this gospel of Mark around in its earliest days. Because the church found herself persecuted and local authorities sought to swat out this religious movement, you could see why it would take such a prominent position in, in the center of Mark's gospel as something that the people that heard this gospel would hear it and take comfort in it. Because Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, and here's, here's kind of the big, the big payoff. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, that is, uh, reluctant to be associated with Jesus and his words, if anyone is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. What Jesus is promising there, it's, it's also kind of, a, kind of a threat. You know, he's promising that if you lose your life, you know, following Jesus and giving your life for the gospel, you will be rescued. And we know that because Jesus himself is rescued from death at the resurrection. You will have rescue. But if you are so caught up in living the, the best of, of this earthly life that you become ashamed of Jesus, that you don't want to associate yourself with him because you are worried that it's going to cost you something, right? then Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me now, I am going to not associate with you either at the, at the judgment day. Now let's begin with chapter 9. And we have to be a little careful because it does. It is a new section, and if you pair it too too closely to what came in chapter eight, it can cause a little bit of confusion. Because remember who he's talking to. He's not talking just to his disciples. He's talking to the crowd and the disciples. And in chapter nine, it's got it, verse one begins with these words, "And he said to them." So you have to ask yourself that little phrase, "And he said to them." What is its function in this sentence? Is it linking what is here with what has already been told to the disciples? Or is it just giving a new teaching to say, and when Jesus was teaching them, he also taught this. So you have kind of two options there. The reason I want that second option, that while he was teaching them, he also taught them this other thing, the reason I believe that second one is more accurate as to why these words are here is because if you slap him onto the first one, Jesus's words don't make a lot of sense. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. If you take this and you put it at the end of chapter 8, then you link it with Jesus talking about the Son of Man returning in the Father's glory with the holy angels and some of you will not see death until that happens, then Jesus turns out to be wrong. He turns out to be giving a false prophecy because everybody there, as you know, everybody there has, has all along died. So how do we understand it then? How do we make sense of this? We have to break this down into its pieces and then we can have a better understanding. So it says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And so the first thing we have to ask is that what is the kingdom of God? What is that? When they talk, when Jesus says the kingdom of God will come with power, what has he used, how has he used that phrase before in Mark's gospel? What does it mean? 
So th thus far, only two places in Mark is all we have up to this point of Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Both of them are back in Mark chapter 4. Um, the first is a parable. It says the kingdom is like a grain that grows, but we don't understand it. We don't really control it. All we do is fulfill our task of participating in its, in its harvest. The second parable about the kingdom Jesus says as the kingdom is like a mustard seed, something that is very small, but becomes the greatest of all things. And both of those parables, as we discussed at the time, are mostly about the work of the church in the world today, not about some future day to come, but about our work today. And that's the first thing. So the kingdom of God, thus far in Mark's gospel, that's what we have as an understanding of the, of the work of the church in its current day in its present time, not the idea of a future kingdom. That's up to this point in Mark's gospel. The second question we ask is, what does it mean that the kingdom of God will come with power? So here in Mark, again, you've got kind of two connotations, two ways that this word power is used. When I say power, I mean specifically the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis up at this point has been used to describe, firstly, the miracles of Jesus, so that when he visited Nazareth, it says that he was not able to do any mighty works. It says literally he was not able to do uh, dunamis. He was not able to do mighty or strength or power. Um, so it refers to sort of those concrete actions that Jesus takes. So that's the first thing, the first way that this word dunamis is used in Mark's gospel. So the second way, though, is later on. He uses this word in Mark 13 and 14 to describe what it will be like when the Son of Man comes in judgment. So in those places, dunamis takes the meaning of strength or the ability to do mighty things rather than the, rather than the concrete things themselves. So before this, dunamis has meant the things themselves that Jesus is doing, the mightiness, the mighty actions that he is doing. After this, dunamis refers to his strength or his capacity to do those mighty things. So the key to understanding this passage, that the kingdom of God will come in power, is to understand what the theologians call the now and the not yet. So if you've got a, if you've got a pastor that ever talks about this, the now and the not yet, here's our opportunity to explore this a little bit. Because what we've seen already is that the kingdom of God is here today. That's what Jesus had been talking about in his parables of the grain growing in the field and the, and, and the people harvesting it and the small grain of mustard that is planted and something great grows out of it. Um, that is the kingdom of God as it exists even today. Like Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's not future tense. Jesus is in control of the universe even today in, in a way that we don't understand because evil and chaos still, uh, still have, its, have their sway all over, uh, all over our world. But Jesus truly is in control of the universe. So that's the now of the kingdom of God. The not yet of the kingdom of God is that future kingdom of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So that understanding, the kingdom of God being a present reality and a future promise at the same time plays out 
all over Scripture. And this word dunamis, the way it's used in Mark, both to refer to our present reality of the work in the church and the future kingdom to come, where Jesus has strength and authority and power to do mighty things, um, that word dynamis is helpful to un for us to understand the power that exists and the power that is going to be yet to come. Furthermore, if you look farther along into the Bible, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he says to them, this is after, of course, the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven to the right hand of God in, in heaven. He says to his disciples, you know, it's not for you to, because they're asking him, hey, is, is now the time? Is now when we're going to, to have the fulfillment of all things? Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive, and here's that word again in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, dunamis, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that power results in Peter preaching at Pentecost and 3,000 people being baptized on the single day. So if we're thinking of the kingdom of God coming in power, right, we see that fulfilled right there at the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 people believe and are baptized on a single day. So there you have that idea of the kingdom of God coming in power, right? It's not a future event. It's something that's happening right then. But it's not just then either, because St. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians even further how to understand the kingdom of God coming in power. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and this is a famous, famous passage, you might remember this. He says, uh, talking about preaching the cross, um, how, he's, how preaching the gospel and the preaching the cross is so vital to him, so important. He says, you know, when I come to a town, the Jews there, who I go to tell them that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Jews there demand that I do miraculous signs. And the Greeks in the town demand that uh, I give them wisdom. He says, but we, as in the, the apostles and the uh, other preachers of the church, he says, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, right? So the, the Jews want miraculous signs. He says, no, we're talking about a Messiah that died on a cross. And that's a stumbling block to them. They can't accept it. And he says, not only that, foolishness to the Gentiles. They think, what do you mean? You're going to, what do you mean you're preaching a God and his, the end of his life was, was death on a cross? And even more, you're telling me he was resurrected, which is a, complete nonsense, a completely nonsense claim to, to the Greek philosophers of the day, right? So it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But this preaching of Christ, he says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1, St. Paul says that this preaching to Christ, to those whom God has called, that is, we who are elect, who have heard the gospel and believed it, to those who God has called, this preaching, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, if God has called you, then Christ is the dunamis of God, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So there's that power word again. And what St. Paul teaches us is that kingdom of God coming in power comes every time someone believes. 
Every time someone believes, the, the power of God through the Holy Spirit uh, enters their hearts and it, it enables them to believe this impossible promise that the creator of all the universe took flesh, became one of us, and died for our sins so that we might be forgiven and so that we might have eternal life. That's what it means for the kingdom of God to come in power. So the upshot of all this is that when Jesus says some of these people who are standing here will not take taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Jesus is not talking about the far future when he comes again in glory. Jesus is talking about the, the near future when they hear the resurrection story and believe the gospel. It first came in power at Pentecost, but all of us who have heard the gospel and believe in it have experienced that very power. And we look forward to the fulfillment when the Son of Man returns in the glory of the Father. So that's the relationship between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, is that the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory. And on that day, those who have believed in him, who were not afraid to be associated with him, who were not ashamed of his words, he will not be ashamed of them either. He will gather them into the kingdom. But until that time, the kingdom of God has already come. It has come in power whenever we hear the gospel and believe it. Okay, I am about out of time today. I have three shout-outs today. Uh, the first one is from Joe, who says uh, that my podcast is well worth your time or commute. Thanks for the thanks for the thumbs up there, Joel. Um, also, uh, two others that are kind of blasts from the past. The first one is from Thomas. I went to high school with Thomas. Hadn't spoken to him in forever. He reached out on Facebook. He says, I've really enjoyed the podcast. Travel a lot and listen between my audiobooks. So thanks for the shout out, Thomas. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, who knew, right? Um, also, uh, this is from Mark. I knew Mark when, when I served in Oklahoma uh, before I became a a full-on pastor, I went through uh, what we call a, uh, we call it a vicarage in our, in our church body, um, but really it's kind of an internship at your, at a local parish while you're in school to be a pastor, and Mark was there uh, serving at that congregation as a musician, um, volunteer musician, fantastic musician. Mark says, this podcast is enlightening, engaging, chock full of information. It's not boring, condescending, or half-baked which I think is quite different from when you knew me way back when. I was very boring, condescending, and half-baked. So thanks for the thumbs up, Mark. Um, it's obvious that Pastor Frank loves God, is passionate about the Word, and is well-educated. So listen to Lunch Break Bible Study. You'll be glad you did. That's super great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Joe. Uh, thanks to everybody who's uh, liked and shared the uh, the the uh, podcast on Facebook and given me five-star reviews on, on iTunes. That's super helpful for getting the word out. I am so glad that I got to come back and do this today. It seems like every time I, I, I want to get some time to sit down behind the microphone, something comes up. It's the it's the life of being a parent. But uh, I'm happy to be here today. Hope to get another episode out real soon. And I hope you have a blessed day.